Hey everyone, this is Josh, host of the Urban Valor Podcast. Today's guest is Marine veteran Rich Reeves. Rich was raised in the Riverdale Park housing projects just north of Boston, Massachusetts. He was introduced to drug dealing around eight years old. He was one of the only Caucasian kids in the projects and had to fight a lot to earn his respect. Rich enlisted into the Marine Corps to become more dangerous and go to war. In this episode, he talks about the pain and suffering he endured to become a Marine martial arts instructor and the heartbreak he faced in the Marine Special Operations Command assessment and selection process. Rich leaves us with the challenges he faced upon transitioning back into the civilian world where he dabbled with the criminal underworld before transitioning on the path to becoming a professional boxer. If you enjoyed this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out on Instagram at Urban Valor TV or you could email me at josh at urbanvalor.com. Enjoy the show. Rich Reeves, United States Marine Corps. I was active duty from 2013 to 2017. I got out as a sergeant, and I'm currently a sergeant in the reserve component. So I was raised in the Riverdale Park Public Housing Developments, which is the projects just north of Boston. The projects themselves are in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is a fishing town just north of Boston. And it's interesting because Riverdale Park is a housing project within Gloucester, and Gloucester is actually a fairly affluent city. So the contrast between the middle-class, working-class city and then the housing projects was a pretty vast contrast. So that definitely shaped my character to a big degree, to always know that there was something else there, but to be so immersed in the projects. I found all this out later when I started going to college and I was researching my neighborhood. You know it's a rough neighborhood, but you're so immersed in it that you don't know anything else really. So when I started looking up the statistics on it, the neighborhood itself was the worst in terms of fatal overdosing on drugs in the entire state, one of the worst in violence in the entire state. This is kind of the weird thing. When I got out and I moved to California, when I would tell people about this, they were very shocked about it, but it was so normal to us. So like one thing that was very, very normal is like before we play in the street, right? Because like we played street football, street basketball, street stickball, we would kind of like line up almost like a police call and just kind of walk down the street and check for needles. If we saw a needle, we would just grab it and throw it in the sewer or something. And that was very normal. When I tell people out here, they're like, whoa, what do you mean there's just needles on the street? Like, yeah, there wasn't just needles on the street when you were like, uh, before we played like football or rugby in the field, we would do the same thing. We would like kind of line up, walk along the field. If we saw a needle, we would just grab it, you know, throw it in the street. Okay. Now we can play ball. It was just kind of like a very normal thing. So now it's funny. Uh, I was out to dinner not that long ago and, um, I dropped my chopstick on the floor and the girl that I was with was like, Oh, now you have to ask for new chopsticks. And I was kind of like, why? This, this is fine. What's wrong with this one? I still did because I didn't want to like seem weird, but like I'm used to grabbing raw needles out of people's arms and throwing them in sewers. So a dirty chopstick is like, what are we even talking about? So I was a complete accident of a child. So my mother was on birth control when she became pregnant with me, but she was on antibiotics. So she didn't know that antibiotics cancel out birth control. So when I was conceived, it was by a man that never should have had kids. And this is interesting because I thank God every day that I never had a biological father in my life because he would not have been a good example. People think that single motherhood is always a bad thing, and it kind of is, but it's better than having an abusive father. I'd rather be neutral than negative, right? I'd rather have no father than an abusive one. I was born in Salem, Massachusetts, which is, again, just north of Boston, and my mother was homeless when she had me. 
So we lived in a homeless shelter for about two years in Salem and then in Gloucester. And even prior to that, it was like sleeping on friends' couches kind of thing, like real, real homeless for a little while. Then when we finally got put into the projects, my biological father was still in the picture. I just never really saw him. He would come once every couple of months, once a year maybe, and we would go out for like a weekend. I would go back to his house and I probably saw him 10, 15 total times in my life. By the time I was five or six, I never heard from him again. Luckily, around that same time, my stepfather came into the picture. And he was a very harsh man, but a very good man. People like to correlate niceness with being good. I think those are two entirely separate things. If you're a nice man, you're probably not a good man. Unless you're a good man first, then you choose to be nice. But my stepfather was very militant. And he took me in as his own. And the reason I have such dying ambition today, the reason my ambition is so insurmountable is because he had dreams and ambitions himself and he gave those up to raise a kid that wasn't his own. And I couldn't imagine doing that even myself today because he was my age when he became my stepfather, when he came into the picture. I couldn't imagine dating a girl with a kid and putting all of my ambition on pause to raise that kid so that that kid has a chance. Because where we came from, not to sound cliche, because modern society and pop culture has made it cool to be from the project. It's not cool to be from the project. It sucks in the projects. You lose friends. You see people overdosing and dying on the street. There's nothing cool about that. But he gave me a chance. The most transformative part of the projects was just the normalization of abnormal events. The most transformative thing now, looking back on it, is just like seeing people who are mannequining, right? Who are just like stuck in this kind of position and just knowing, yeah, that person's overdosing on heroin and just going right, right back to the game. Like now, if that happens, crowds form, people call EMS, you know, people are recording on their phones. Back then, it was just like, yeah, Barbara's overdosing on heroin again. And that was it. Or if somebody's tweaking out in the corner, it's like, yeah, she's ODing on crack, no big deal. And then you would just kind of go back to your thing. One particularly noteworthy event was I lived in apartment 42. In our housing projects, there was four apartments per building. So I was in 42, which was the apartment on the far right side of the building. On an apartment 40, which was the adjacent building, there was a huge drug bust there. SWAT was on our block a couple of times. This one in particular, I remember because my mother and, and my stepdad were both pretty involved in the drug game at this point. And when we heard the birds overhead, the helicopters overhead, and we saw the spotlights coming down, it was so close to our apartment that my mother and stepdad thought it was our apartment that was being raided. So they went into full-blown panic mode. They're like reaching under the couch to grab their stash, and they're flushing stuff down the toilet, and they're throwing pills out the window, and they're trying to clean the house as much as they can for the incoming raid. And I remember just kind of watching what was going on, because I knew that they were involved in that. They were very open with me from a very young age about that. So I knew what was going on. I knew that they were trying to clean house for the, the raid. And they were like flushing stuff down the toilet, throwing pills out the window. And um, they're trying to like, you know, throw away their like, drug paraphernalia, like pipes and all that. This is back when marijuana was illegal. And when the raid went next door, there was a huge sigh of relief. But, oh, wait, we just threw away all our stash. So now how are we going to make rent? But when that raid came, 
the news the next day was that that apartment had thousands of unmarked pills, which are all narcotics, obviously, to sell. They had automatic weapons in there, safes full of cash. It was a it was a drug den. I mean, most apartments in Riverdale Park were drug dens, and that was very normal. The raid itself wasn't noteworthy because that happened a couple of times. What was noteworthy was seeing the reaction from inside my own apartment, seeing the panic to make sure we flush everything away. What ended up happening as a consequence of that, right? We threw away all the stash. So now that was our primary income source. Accounting for inflation, the per capita income in Riverdale Park is $7,000 a year. When I mean poverty, I don't mean abject poverty because abject poverty is a real thing in the real world. For the United States, though, $7,000 a year is pretty hard to live on. So everybody has their side hustle, and none of those side hustles are legal. They're all drug dealing. They're all prostitution, things like that. When I was seven or eight, my stepdad called me downstairs kind of randomly, and I got down to the coffee table in the living room, and he just had a bunch of stuff laid out on the table. And I was kind of like, you know, I think I was seven or eight, and he goes, hey, Rich, let me go ahead and explain what's going on. So he starts to just kind of point things out to me. So he goes, this is marijuana. Here's how you smoke it. Here's how much it costs. Here's what it does to you. Here's how it'll look if somebody tries to offer it to you. Here's what it does. This is heroin. Here's how it looks. Here's how it'll be presented to you. Here's the effect it has. Here's what it costs. And he was just going down the list. Acid, pills, a bunch of different pills. And the reason he was doing that is to eliminate the curiosity. People get involved in drugs because they're curious about them. And he saw that coming a mile away. There was literally 10-year-old drug dealers in my neighborhood. I knew kids who were 10, 11 years old who were selling drugs actively. It was pretty, I knew a few of them. My neighbor, actually, his name was James. I think he's dead now, but he was a drug dealer. And he was 12, 13 at the time I was 10 when he got involved in it. By eliminating that curiosity, he just knew by the time you get offered drugs, you're going to know more about it than they do. You're going to know, like, no, I don't want to be... Like mannequining, he told me what mannequining was when you're just like kind of stuck in this frozen position. He goes, yeah, no, that's a heroin overdose. Do you want to do that? Does that look fun to you? I was like, no, it doesn't look fun at all. He was offering me drinks when I was like 10, 11, 12. He wanted me to already have had the taste of alcohol. So that would be over it by the time I was 13, 14, 15. And I would be invited to parties where drugs and alcohol would be prevalent. He wanted to eliminate all curiosity. So... He showed me what all of these drugs were so that by the time I was 13 and I was offered drugs, I was 12 and I was offered drugs, it was old news to me. I'm like, no, I don't want, I don't want any part of that. I'm good. I was a short, fat, white, stuttering kid in the projects. I'm glad that I wasn't born tall, athletic, handsome, charming. I was a very, very easy target. And my stepfather taught me how to fight. Initially, it was hockey-style fighting. He just told me, grab his shirt and swing until your knuckles break or his face breaks. And you do not stop swinging until you can run away. He taught me that because you can only come home so many times, bruised and battered and beaten. There was one time in particular that I had a very, very fat welt under my eye, like a very big purple welt under this eye. And I told him I got hit with a line drive in baseball. He knew I was lying, right? So he was like, hey, I want to show you something. So he goes, have you ever seen Hal Gill? Hal Gill was a uh, defenseman on the Boston Bruins at the time, the hockey team. And he was known for being the defender of the hockey team. So he was, a, he was like six, seven feet tall. And he would 
anytime any of the opposing players took a shot at a Boston Bruin, Hal Gill would come onto the ice and pick a fight with him as a way to say, you don't mess with my team, right? So he showed me some clips of Hal Gill on the Boston Bruins. He goes, I want you to do this the next time anybody even looks at you the wrong way. You're done being a victim right now. If you get suspended, you're on vacation. We'll go to Six Flags if you get suspended. He was like, I want you to get suspended. The very next time somebody, he said something about my mother. And I'm very protective about, about my mother. My mother gave up her fucking life to raise me. And she could have very easily aborted me. And she chose to do the hard thing instead and raise a kid with no home, no income, no family, in a homeless shelter, nothing. I think I was nine or 10 at the time. We were on the bus. Once we got off the bus, I got off on his stop. My stop was like three away, but I got off on his stop and he noticed me getting off with him. So I just kind of like tapped him in the back like this. The minute he turned around, I grabbed his shoulder and I just started swinging as hard as I could, pulling his face into my hand, just like my dad taught me. And he couldn't swing because I'm holding him here. So he can't hit me with this hand. And this hand was trying, but I'm swinging too hard. So I just busted every bone in his face. I probably hit him five or six times. And then I noticed a few of his teeth fell out. His nose was broken. He had like a fat bleeding eye. And I threw him in a snowbank. And then his mother came out and was throwing a fit. His mother came out of the apartment and was like losing her mind. Everybody on the bus just got a front row ticket to my first fight, right? And they were all, you know, going crazy because, you know, you get to watch a fight. But I was panicked. I had like blood on my hands. My hands were cut up from his teeth. So I just threw him in the snowbank and I started to book it home, hoping nobody would see, right? Everybody just saw what happened and everybody knew who I was, obviously, because it was a small neighborhood. So the following day, the school reaches out and, hey, you've been suspended for two weeks. My dad goes, awesome. I'll take two weeks off of work. We're going to go play baseball together. We're going to go to a Sox game. He was like, I'm fucking proud of you for standing up for yourself. Now, that same event happened probably 80, 90, 100 more times. Before people knew, let's, let's leave this kid alone, right? Because I was still very rugged. I didn't know how to fight. I didn't know how to punch. But other kids that were older, or if they were of a different ethnicity or something like that, they didn't like the short, fat, stuttering white kid. I was still an easy target. Even though I beat up one kid, I was still an easy target. Being bullied for a couple of years before I fought back was a metaphor for how my life would turn out. There was this one particular event that really shaped who I am today. And this is why anytime I see somebody that's homeless outside of a Starbucks, I like have to buy them a sandwich. I have to buy them something. I cannot deal with people being hungry. Real poverty is not glorious. Real poverty is hard. Real poverty shapes you, but it's very, very hard. After that big initial drug raid on the adjacent apartment to us, once we you know threw away all of our stash and everything, well, that came like a little personal depression for us because that was most of our income because my stepfather still worked full-time but a lot of that went towards their own indulgences money was very very tight that following month and i remember my mother was eating something in the living room i was in the kitchen so then i opened the cupboard and i was like uh hey mom there's one can of beefaroni left can i have it and she was like yeah of course you can so then i peeled the top open and I poured it in the bowl and I put it in the microwave. And then I looked at what my mother was eating and it just looked like two pieces of bread. So I asked her, I was like, Mom, what are you, what are you eating? She goes, oh, it's just a sandwich. But I saw, it was literally just a mayonnaise sandwich. 
like we had nothing else in the house. There was no meat. There was no cheese. There was we only had bread and mayonnaise and this one last can of beefaroni. And I knew she was hungry, but my hunger was more important to her. Later on that night, I really thought like, wow, I know my mother's still hungry right now. Like I, and like I heard her crying in her room later on that night because our rooms are next to each other. And I remember thinking like, I'll bet those are hunger cries. I'll bet those are hunger pains because there was nothing in the house, just empty. It's very hard to be ungrateful now because if I've eaten today, I'm better off than I was at one point. So that level of gratitude, you, you have to go through things like that in order to be grateful today. So it's very hard to bitch about your Starbucks order being wrong when you know that that stuff's still happening. Like there's still people today that are literally going hungry in the projects and I have plenty to eat. My cupboards at home are full right now. So how can I complain? My stepdad was very, very militant from a young age. He was like, you're going to wake up at this time. You're going to do this. But he put very strict parameters on me. And I think that was because he knew he was giving up his dreams and ambitions for me. Like, he had dreams and goals to be a professional soccer player, and he could have done it. He was very, very, very good at soccer. And he put that on hold to raise a kid that he met twice. Because of that, he put very harsh parameters on me. And I'm very, very grateful for that. But my first full-time job when I was 10 years old, so he was a cook professionally his pretty much entire life. So he would have me in the back of the kitchen doing prep work, washing dishes, sweeping floors, busting tables from 10 years old, like full time, like over the summer, it was like, you're going to start at 5am and you're going to get off at 3pm when we close. So I've always had this work ethic just seems so normal. Like if I work a 12 hour day, I'm like, I probably could have done some more. Like there's probably more that I could have done. Cause he was also very like, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. That was kind of like his, his saying in the kitchen, meaning there's always work to do, like work faster so that you can do other stuff. Because there's always work to do. So don't take your time washing the dishes. Wash those fucking things quick and let's go. You have more shit to do. And so he had me working full-blown on the line, like a line cook at 14 years old. You can't even use a knife in Massachusetts until you're 18. At that time, I was on the books because it was legal to work at 14. But he lied and said that I was like a dishwasher or something like that so that I could actually work on the line and prep cook. If I wasn't working, like while I was in school, after school, it was like, we're playing baseball today. You're going to play baseball all day. And he would like, you know, look out the window to make sure I was still on my little freaking thing, fielding ground balls in the pitch back, you know, fielding ground balls or pitching or practicing my swing. He would like make sure I was doing stuff because I think he understood if you're busy on the right path, you can't go down the wrong one. So he just kept me busy. He just kept me busy because the temptation was always there. It would be very easy to infiltrate your habits. And now all of a sudden you're a drug dealer instead of a baseball player. We went to a few uh, Red Sox games because you could like kind of walk up to the park and just get like the nosebleed seats for like six, seven, eight bucks. So we would like, hop the train down into Fenway and we would just like kind of like hawk tickets or whatever. Everything is cash in Boston. It still is, but especially back then, of course, like, nobody had credit cards or debit cards. There would be, you know, guys on the street that would like buy a ticket for 10 bucks and try to sell it for 20 or whatever it was. And half of those guys were cops. They were undercover because that's illegal. It's called scalping. So they were like trying to catch people who were doing that. We would always like kind of hop the train down to Boston. We had like 30 bucks cash 
And it was like, I'll bet we can freaking scope a couple of $15 seats if we can go watch the fucking Red Sox. And it was never like a Red Sox-Yankees game. That didn't happen until later because those, those things were expensive, especially then during the rivalry. I could either stay in Boston as a probably a line cook, work in a restaurant, probably start drinking, probably start using drugs, just live a very basic existence. Most people in Boston live five to three labor job and go drink beer, watch the Patriots. That was option one. Option B is I could join the U.S. Marine Corps. I could travel around the country. I could learn a transferable skill. I could have college paid for, and I can mature on my own away from home. Those are my two options. I graduated high school. I think I had the lowest passing GPA in my school. I graduated with a 1.9 GPA. College was out of the question. College wasn't going to happen, at least not on my own. A, no college would have accepted me besides a community college. B, I didn't really see the value in it because I didn't know what I wanted to be besides an athlete. I wanted to be something dangerous. I wanted to make sure, I wanted to make sure that nobody ever put their hands on me again. I wanted to make sure that nobody ever put their hands on my mother again. I wanted to make sure when I had a daughter, nobody's ever going to put their hands on my daughter. You don't learn that in college. You have to go and do something scary. So the scariest thing to me was, let's go to war. I've already been in war my whole life. Fuck it. Let's go to war. So I wanted to join the Marine Corps. I didn't want to join the Army. I didn't want to join the Navy or the Air Force or the Coast Guard. I wanted to know which branch I was most likely to see combat in. I wanted it. I wanted to be uncomfortable. I wanted to grow because I wanted to get the hell out of where I was because I can't live that normal life. I just cannot do it. Everything everybody else loves, I can't stand. I can't stand going to the movies. I can't stand going to parties. I hate clubs. I hate drinking. I want to do something that's going to change me. I like transforming. I like growing. I like learning. I like becoming better. That's the only thing that, that interests me. And you just don't get better in college. You just don't. You learn what they tell you to learn. You read their textbooks that they tell you to read. You do their assignments that they deem as necessary. What if I don't want to learn your perspective? What if I want to learn my own perspective? Where's the college for that? There is no college for that. That's what they don't tell you. You think you're going there to learn. You're going there to learn what they want you to learn. You're not going there to learn how to be a man. You're not going there to learn how to be a father. You can't learn that in college. I wanted to grow. You can't grow in a classroom. You can't grow by, I'm in class from eight to nine, and then I'm going to go smoke weed and drink and have sex with strangers and catch an STD. That's not growing to me. That's deteriorating. I didn't have any interest in that. Since I was a kid, I had no interest in that. So the Marine Corps was a place where I'm terrified to go. Anybody who's ever been on that bus, when it's four in the morning, it's pitch black outside, and you were on that bus for a couple of hours in absolute silence, and you can hear people's thoughts in that bus of what did I just get myself into? There's no way out now. You're here, and you're going to be here for three months, whether you like it or not. And when those doors open up and that drill instructor gets on that bus, almost nobody will ever have even that level of fear of the unknown. You just know it's going to be hard. You just know it's going to suck. 
but you think you're going to die. Like that training is not for the feeble. That training is brutal. That training will change you. This is why I can look at a veteran and I can tell you, any veteran knows you can spot another veteran a mile away. You walk into a mall, heck, has a veteran right there. It's because I have a baseline understanding. If you're a veteran, I know that you've put yourself through very difficult training. I know that you've formed very close bonds with people and then had those bonds break. And then you've calloused over your emotionality. And then I know that when you fall in love, you fall in love incredibly hard because you have such high standards for love. So that once you find it, you cling onto it. And then when that inevitably breaks off, because it will break off, you callous over it even harder. And then you can't form bonds anymore because nobody meets your standard. And you feel alone in this world like you're going to die and nobody gives a fuck. And I can tell that from your high and tight. You can't get that in college. So college was out of the question, at least out of high school. I had to grow first. So my recruiting experience was actually very cordial. So because I knew right away, like, I want to go and be this. So I walked into the Marine Corps recruiter and my recruiter was an infantry guy. And I said, I want to go to war. I said, I want to be a recon Marine. And he was like, okay, awesome. Uh, have you ever swam before? Well, no. Okay, so recon deals with the pool a lot, the ocean a lot. You're going to be in the water 12 hours a day in recon. You're going to do a lot of swimming. If you've never swam before, I would not advise you getting a recon contract. Instead, he said, why don't we do this? Why don't we just put you in as a general purpose Marine? You know, just pick whatever MOS is available. In this case, it was ammunition technician. He goes, you'll work on explosive and ex explosives and bombs, and you'll work with uh, C4 and detonation cord and, and debt sheet, and you'll work with explosives, but it's in the logistics field, so you'll have a lot of time to train up for recon. So I joined the Marine Corps at 17. I turned 18 in boot camp. That was a lot of fun. The general instructors found out it was my birthday, and the whole company was doing some birthday burpees, like a few hundred of them to be exact. <laughs> I was going to go be a logistics Marine so that I can train up for recon. As it would happen, I learned about MARSOC while I was in. I still had my stutter when I was in boot camp. The drill instructors train you in a way to where if we're ever in combat together, I have to know that you're going to be competent and capable. So they told me, you're not allowed to stutter anymore. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting because I've been in speech therapy since I was six. If the speech pathologists are telling me, you're going to stutter the rest of your life. It's just the way it is. Maybe you'll outgrow it. Probably not. You're probably always going to stutter. My grandmother stuttered. So I inherited it from her. Even to join the Marine Corps with a stutter was hard. I had to get a waiver because I didn't pass the speech test. Most people don't know that there's a speech test, but if you go in stuttering, they give it to you. And I failed it the first time. I had to go back and retake it. And I had to have Master Sergeant Thane at the Boston MEPS, the Military Entrance Processing Station, he was the one that saw the fire in my eyes. Like, I knew since I was 12, I'm going to be a Marine. And he saw that, and he let it wave. He gave me a waiver, even though I, he probably shouldn't have. But the drill instructors were completely intolerant of a stutter. Because what if you have to hop on the radio to ask for an airstrike, and you can't do it? What if you have to say, grenade, because a frag grenade jumped on the roof, and you can't communicate that you just saw a hand grenade. You're going to have people die. And they were right. Having a stutter is a big deal. So the drill instructor said, you're not allowed to stutter anymore. Figure it the fuck out. And that ended up being my slogan for life. Fitfo. Figure it the fuck out. 
You could probably figure it out. You just don't want to. You don't want to do the work, but you know the answer. In this particular case, the answer was, we're going to make you extremely uncomfortable and make you talk all the fucking time. They'd have me stand on two foot lockers in front of the squad bay. So in a squad bay, there's probably 30 or 40 racks on either side, which each houses two Marines. So there was about 100 Marines in my platoon. So they would have me stand on top of both foot lockers and recite the Rifleman's Creed. Every time I stuttered, everybody else had to exercise. And I got to just stand there. I was stuttering so much that he got a broomstick and he would just bang it on the floor. Instead of saying, down, that got tiring for his voice. And if anybody knows a drill instructor, how long they can yell for, the fact that he got tired of screaming down, I was stuttering like you couldn't imagine. Literally every syllable, every word. And he would just keep banging on the floor, banging on the floor, banging on the floor. Everybody else had to do five burpees every time I stuttered. We had people puking in the middle of the squad bay. We had people literally crying in pain because they could not do another burpee. And I'm still in the first sentence. Imagine that humiliation. I am perfectly fine. I haven't done a single exercise. I'm just so nervous that my speech matters so much right now. The crazy thing is it worked. After a certain amount of time, they would have me run to the tree line. So in boot camp, your squad bay is in a building and it's kind of like surrounded by a big forest. So they would have me run to the tree line and apologize to every tree for wasting the oxygen they were producing on me stuttering. And I would just go tree to tree and apologize to them. And they wrote out the whole thing. I apologize tree for this recruit not being able to speak properly. Then I would go to the next tree and say the same thing. So they just had me apologizing to all these trees and making everybody else exercise every time I stuttered. Within a couple of weeks, I didn't have a stutter. Isn't that amazing? How you can literally, I've been told since I was six years old, this is a condition you have, you'll never outgrow it. It is what it is, you just have to deal with it. The drill instructor said, no, you're going to deal with it. You're going to figure it out. You're going to stop stuttering right now. And it worked. Drill instructor Sergeant Galanak, you cured my stutter. And paved the way to have the life and career that I currently have because out of boot camp, being able to speak without stuttering was like a superpower because now I can communicate to people. I can actually talk to people. That was unbelievable to me. That was a superpower. You're telling me I can ask somebody to do something and they'll do it. That blew my mind. You have to understand, I can never order what I wanted at a restaurant. I had to order what I could say easily. I could never approach a girl, ever. What are you kidding? I approached this girl in middle school and I asked her to the dance. We had four minutes in between classes. She was in both of my next classes. So after the bell rang, I walked to her locker, which is right next to mine, and I asked her to the dance. It took me so long to ask her that the bell rang for the next class. It took me four minutes of staring at the floor, staring at the ceiling, looking around the lockers, not making eye contact at all, to be able to ask her to a dance and then her just say no. Well, she actually said yes, then had one of her friends tell me that she actually didn't want to go. That's character building. To have such low confidence. And now all of a sudden, I'm U.S. Marine. All of a sudden, I'm among the 1%. That's a big transition. Now, all of a sudden, I'm living on my own. I'm out of the house. I have a car now. I have income. My job is working with explosives. I can talk to you now because I don't have a stutter anymore. 
I can approach you at the coffee shop and talk to you and ask you out. That confidence boost? Thank God I wasn't born tall, handsome, dark, sexy, confident. Thank God I had to earn it because now I'm grateful for it. I remember drill instructor Staff Sergeant Stevenson. That man scared the shit out of me. Drill instructor Staff Sergeant Stevenson was an animal, and he didn't give a fuck if you lived or died. He was an animal. He was a big factor in my confidence, too, because if you can get through his training, my God. If you, if you can get through that man, you can get through anything. That man was a barbarian, in the best sense of the word. Because then, once we graduated, he was the coolest dude on earth. It's like, that was all an act? I thought you were genuinely a demon. I thought you were literally the most satanic person I've ever met in my life. Then afterwards, he's like the coolest guy. Like, I would go out for a drink with that dude right now. Joe started Sergeant Galanak, however, he was pissed that we were all Marines. He hated us. Like, he genuinely did not like us. Like, when we graduated, he would literally say, you're still calling me sir. Because now you're a private in the Marine Corps. Once you pass the crucible, you're a private in the Marine Corps. And he's a sergeant in the Marine Corps. So you call him sergeant now. He was like, no motherfuckers, you're still going to call me sir. Because you motherfuckers aren't real Marines. He, he hated us, boy, because we were the... We were the booger platoon. We were the worst platoon in the company. And he was humiliated by that because he had very high standards too. And anybody who could manage to meet his standards was a good, a good man and a good Marine. So I went to ammunition school in Fort Lee, Virginia. And that school is about two months long, but we had a very long wait period because there's a lot of ammo techs that are, you know, going through the process at the time. So we were in MAP platoon, Marines awaiting training platoon for a a good few months. I was in Fort Lee, Virginia for like six months. And after boot camp, which is a little over three months, you get like a 10-day liberty period back home. Then you're back to Marine combat training. And that's like a month and change. And then you go straight to your MOS school, which in my case was ammunition school in Fort Lee, Virginia. So that in ammunition school was the very first time you had any sense of liberty at all. Because every second of your day is scheduled from the minute you're in boot camp until the minute you graduate Marine combat training. Every minute of your day is scheduled. Once you get to MOS school, now you have a little bit of freedom. Now you work from eight to five or whatever it is, zero eight to 1700, and now you're off for the day. You can do whatever you want on that base. And we're on, on an army base, which is very different than a Marine Corps base because the Marine Corps base is a lot more strict. Army base is a little bit more lenient. You have a little bit more liberty. So this is the first time I ever exercised my new confidence. When I checked into my unit, it was Ammunition Company, which is on Camp Pendleton in California. When I checked in, my whole unit was in Afghanistan. So they left by a skeleton crew of Marines that would like welcome the new people in and show you your barracks room and all this kind of thing. Everybody that got held back and didn't get to go to Afghanistan was very bitter, myself included, because I missed that deployment by a couple of months. And I joined the Marine Corps to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. I wanted to get in the shit. So when I got to my unit, hazing's not allowed in the military, right? But sometimes you get hazed in the military. So when I first arrived, they showed me my barracks room or whatever. And then um, we went to work in the ASP, the Ammunition Supply Point, which is a big bowl in the middle of Camp Pendleton. The reason it's in a big bowl in the middle of Camp Pendleton is because that's where all the ammunition is housed. In magazines, which are big cement buildings. The reason they're in big cement buildings and in a giant bowl is so that if any of the ammunition goes off, if any of the ammunition prematurely detonates, it'll set everything off. And the explosion will go straight up instead of out. 
so it won't contaminate the entire base. Because we also worked with a lot of seaburn, chemical, biological, radioactive, neurological. So that would have spread throughout all of Camp Pendleton and been a really, really big issue. So they put it in a giant bowl. So if we die, only we die. So while we were in that giant bowl, there's 27 magazines that all house different kinds of ammunition. In the middle, there's a hard stand. And that hard stand is kind of like where all the maintenance stuff is for the magazines, for all that kind of stuff. So they showed me the hard stand on my tour of the ammunition supply point. And everybody else in that room was either a senior Lance Corporal, an E3, or an E4, a non-commissioned officer. And then here's my ass, a private, right out of MOS school. No idea what's going on. So one of the things that they did, uh, obviously hazing never happens in the military. Like nobody hazes in the military, obviously. But they did uh, tie my hands and feet back and made me bark like a seal while they were all doing whatever they were doing for work. And if I stopped barking like a seal, they would come over and like balance a ball on my nose like a performing seal and make sure that I barked like a seal. And especially because they knew I wanted to go recon. Recon is kind of like the Navy SEAL's baby brother because they're both aquatic based. They're both reconnaissance based. So they would tell me that I wanted to be a SEAL, so you get to act like a SEAL. So they would hog tie me up, so I, I couldn't move my hands or feet. I just had to bob like this, and they would have me bark like a SEAL, or, 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 shit like that. I actually think hazing is a good thing. I think hazing is important. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So this is something that I talk a lot online about myself, is minimization. Like minimizing the significance of what's going on around you. Because I think more often than not, if you actually like froze time for a second and thought, what's actually happening right now? You're going to realize it's nothing. Like if you're super depressed right now, well, what's actually going on? Probably like you're not in fear of dying right now. Nobody that you know is dying right now, hopefully. If none of those things are going on, it kind of helps put things into perspective. It's like, I'm going to still be here tomorrow. And one quote that I really like a lot is, if you think you have a problem, and it won't still be a problem a year from now, then you don't have a problem. So that hazing, in perspective, what was actually going on? They were having a bunch of fun at my expense. I thought it was kind of funny. They thought it was kind of funny. What's the big deal? Now, had that happened today, if it actually happened, because of course it didn't happen, but if that had happened, those guys would have lost rank. They would have been legally punished and held accountable for that. I think it was just a bunch of us having a good laugh together and becoming closer as Marines. I think the only reason people have a downward look, I think the only reason people have a bad view of hazing is because it's people that would never be in a position to be hazed in the first place. It's the same people who demonize military training as being too difficult. It's like, well, that's for you. I need it more difficult because a very particular type of person joins the military and even more particular type of person joins the Marine Corps. An even more particular type of person enjoys the hazing. So you don't have to get hazed. That's fine. But allow me to. Because I need it. I want it. I want to form that bond with these guys. And that's part of the reason. That's part of the way in which you do that. So leave the hazing alone. Leave the military culture alone if you're not in it. And even if you are in the military, if you're not in these specific niche MOSs and cultures, leave that to them. Don't go trying to change Navy SEAL training if you're admin in the Navy. Leave Navy SEALs alone. Leave recon Marines alone. Leave infantry Marines alone. Unless you're one of them. And you're not one of them because if you were, you would like that kind of training. So my secondary MOS in the Marine Corps was as a martial arts instructor. 
So the martial arts instructors, what I particularly focused on is weapon disarmament. So I taught Marines how to take pistols away from assailants, how to take knives away from assailants, how to take long guns away from assailants, and then use those weapons back against the adversary. That was my main focus. In order to do that, you have to go through the martial arts instructor course. So the martial arts instructor course is three weeks long. It's not very long, but it's 16 hours a day of fighting, shallow water grappling, sparring, obstacle courses, long runs, simulated combat, a very, very difficult course. The martial arts instructor course was actually more difficult than the first phase of special operations selection. The martial arts instructor course is brutal. I still have permanent ligament damage in my knees, tendon damage in my biceps, and permanent brain damage from that course. That course is brutal. I got brain damage because we were demonstrating hip throws. A hip throw is where, assuming somebody throws a punch at you, you can kind of catch their wrist and you put your lower back into their thigh and you can throw them over your lower back onto the ground. It's a takedown, a takedown technique. During that, I got thrown so hard that I went over the top and I landed on the back of my head and I knocked out for a second. And when I came to, everybody was just kind of like, hey, get up, let's go. It's your turn to throw now. And I was like dizzy and wobbly and vision was foggy and a crippling headache. And I was all over the place, but I just kept going through with the course. So that's how I got the permanent brain damage. The tendon damage in my biceps came from doing the obstacle course with a full combat load. So you're in full camouflage utilities, a 65-pound pack, rifle, and then simulated weight load. So you'll have your cargo pockets full of stuff. The instructors on this course, who are called the MAITs, the Martial Arts Instructor Trainers, they have a red tab on their black belts. These guys are savages. And this is also where I learned how to suck things up. About two weeks into the course... We had run the obstacle course a number of times, which involves a lot of upper body movement. You're going over bars. You're climbing up ropes with all this, all this weight load. It's a lot to put on your tendons. I came to the lead instructor, Staff Sergeant Vogt, V-O-G-T, Staff Sergeant Vogt. And I told him, I was like, uh, excuse me, Staff Sergeant, I'm having really bad inflammation in my tendons. I couldn't even rotate my wrists. I didn't even know that the biceps was involved in a forearm rotation until then, because this tendon was so inflamed, I couldn't rotate my wrist. I told him that. And he goes, okay, you know what? I understand. Go ahead and write this down. It's a medication. I'm going to tell you the medication. You go to the pharmacy after, after class today and you buy it. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Took out my right in the rain, notepad, and a pen. And he goes, all right, I'm going to spell it for you. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Go ahead and give it to me. All right, spelled S-T-R-A-W. Straw to suck up the fuck up with. Get in line for the old course. That was exactly what he told me. And I was like, you're right. I could probably suck this the fuck up. I could probably suck this up. I was like, there's probably people doing harder things than this. I couldn't rotate my wrist or lift my arms up, but I still got through the old course. So imagine that. That's where I kind of learned the reality of mental limitation. Like if it's either this or die, what do you think? You can't do a pull up to save your life? Of course you could your brain is going to allow you to do it because it doesn't want you to die. From an evolutionary perspective, you'll do anything except die. You could probably do it. So I did, and I ran the O course a bunch more times, and I was, I was probably taking about a full bottle of ibuprofen a day. 
And then once I graduated the course, I literally had to take like three months off the gym. I couldn't lift my arms. But I was a black belt martial arts instructor. And that's something that I still carry to this day with pride. And a lot of people, you know, they kind of look down on it because a lot of martial arts instructors kind of treat their tab like a physical training type thing. They just slay you with mountain runs and a lot of physical training, but they don't really focus on the martial arts that much. I focused a lot on the martial arts. So on my how I ran my courses was the first day and the last day were very hard physical training. Everything in the middle was strictly martial arts. My first day was a gut check. Do you actually want to be on my course? Because a lot of Marines want to get a new martial arts belt. I only have 12 slots. So you have to prove to me that you want to be here. The first day is a gut check. We're running mountains, carrying logs, sandbags, sparring, grappling for hours, and you are absolutely smoked at the end of it. If you're still standing at the end, you've earned a month of just martial arts training with me. The very final day is to make sure you can do everything that I taught you while you're exhausted. Because if you're in combat and you actually have to take a rifle away from somebody, can you do that while you're fatigued from combat? If you can't do it, you don't know the technique. So my last day, we're running mountains. We have logs. We have sandbags. The most brutal training I could imagine. And when you finally climb to the top of this, we called it seven-layer hill because there was like seven little hills leading up to the, the summit of the mountain. Once you reach the top of that mountain, now that you're absolutely dog tired, and now you have to perform your martial arts exam. And I'm watching you carefully because if you have a belt, if I ever put a belt through your front right belt loop, you earn that belt because that means you actually know the technique so well that you can do it while you're exhausted. And we go over that stuff endlessly, hundreds of times, thousands of times. You still know it. I'll bet if somebody holds a pistol to your face like that, you could probably still take it without even having to think about it. I ingrain that in your mind very, very, very carefully. When I joined the Marine Corps, I couldn't speak. I had a stutter so bad that I was incapable of communicating to any level, any degree. I couldn't talk to anybody about anything. My stutter was absolutely crippling. Fast forward to two years later, I'm a, I'm a black belt Marine Corps martial arts instructor, and I have Marines dying to get on my course because they just want to hear me speak and teach them. That contrast between I can't talk at all to you will go over barriers to hear me speak. That's still one of the greatest accomplishments that I've ever had. Because as a martial arts instructor, your job is to teach. I'm here to teach you things. In order to do that, I have to speak. So now I have crowds of Marines. There was times, there was only five martial arts instructors in my regiment. A regiment has about 2,500 Marines in it. It would be me and four other guys teaching a regiment. So I'm standing on top of a table in this big open field. And there's literally thousands of Marines that are just there to hear me speak. And I was never able to speak before. So that contrast made a, a huge impact on my life, my confidence. And that's why now I'm so hell-bent on competence and confidence, because those two things are linked. You can't be confident without competence. You have to have been able to achieve things in order to be confident. So you actually can't teach confidence. It's a byproduct of becoming capable. So that's what I try to tell people is like, if you want to be as confident as I am to where I can just walk up to somebody and start a conversation with them, I could walk up to that hot girl in the bar and have a conversation with them. The reason I can do that is because I know that I'm so capable. It's because I've been through a lot of hard things. A pretty girl telling me no is not going to affect me, G. 
So you have to have gone through actual difficulty, actual hardship. And there's a difference between real hardship and perceived hardship. If you just think your life is tough, it's probably not. You have to actually put yourself through, through situations that are going to change you. Once I was a martial arts instructor and I was practicing MAI in the Marines, I had about one year left on my enlistment. It's time to go to special operations. It's time to become a warrior, a real warfighter. My whole plan from the minute I enlisted was to go recon. As luck would have it, about two years into the Marine Corps, I heard whispers about MARSOC. Nobody knew what MARSOC was yet. It was stood up in 2006. And MARSOC is the Marine Corps Special Operations Command. It falls under SOCOM, the U.S. Special Operations Command. And they are the equivalent of the Army Special Forces Green Berets, the U.S. Navy SEALs, the Air Force Parajumpers. They're a Tier 2 Special Operations Unit. Recon is a really cool MOS within the Marine Corps. MARSOC falls under SOCOM. So they're technically Special Operations, Tier 2, your face can't be shown in pictures, that kind of thing. So I thought, well, if I'm going to go through Special Operations level training, let me just go straight Special Operations. So I put in my lateral move package to go to MARSOC. I was in training on my own for about eight, ten months after my whole workday in the Marine Corps, which you have to work out in the Marine Corps as a part of your enlistment. Every morning you're going on PT runs. Every morning you're doing log drills. Every morning you're doing some kind of physical exercise. And then during your day, there's also a lot of physicality. After that, I would go and work out for an hour, and then I would go on either a nautical mile swim in the pool, a nautical mile lap in the ocean, or a 12-mile ruck run to prepare for MARSOC, because this is no joke time. This is killers. This is you're going to combat. You're going to see action. This is real, real military. And I couldn't wait. So it comes time for my lateral move. I get orders to go to assessment and selection, ANS. At assessment and selection, it's a two-month process. Phase one is one month. Phase two is one month. During that first month, it's a lot of the physical assessment. Phase two, nobody knows. That's highly classified. And once you see it, you can never go back to assessment and selection again because now you have an unfair advantage over the other candidates because you know it's in phase two. Nobody knows it's in phase two. And if you've ever found a MARSOC Raider and you ask them what's in phase two, they won't tell you either. Very classified. And they take it very seriously because you're going to go to war with them. They want to know that you can do whatever's in phase two without having any prior knowledge of it. I have been in very, very intense training for eight to 10 months to get ready for MARSOC. I was running my 12-mile ruck run in just over two hours, which is an excellent time. My nautical mile swim in well under an hour, excellent time. My 500-meter swim, under nine minutes, amazing time. I show up to assessment and selection. The first thing they have us do is a regular Marine Corps physical fitness test, a three-mile run. One mile into the three-mile run, I feel a pull in my right knee. So I keep running. Like That's weird. It's probably a cramp or something like that. About another half mile in, we're about halfway through the three-mile run. And at this point, three miles is like walking to the fridge. Like three miles is absolutely nothing. So I'm like, what's going on with my knee? Like by the end of the run, my knee was completely locked out straight and it wouldn't bend. I couldn't allow myself to go home 
without even starting assessment and selection yet. So I just tried to massage it out and deal with it. When I later on brought it to the attention of the Navy Corpsman, which is the Marine Corps medical assets, they didn't know what was going on either. They were like, yeah, that's weird. Do you want to drop? Do you want to stay in training? I want to stay in training. So the instructors noticed, but they obviously don't modify the training at all. The very next day, I think, was the six-mile ruck run to warm you up for the 12. Now, I've been doing 12s all the time. At this point, still nobody knows what's going on on my knee. I don't know. The corpsmen don't know. Nobody knows. I just don't know that it's locked out straight. If you've ever tried to run with one knee locked out straight, your whole body tries to compensate for that lack of movement because you can't run straight and calm anymore. Now you have to do a lot of this kind of movement while you're running. That takes a lot of additional energy. And when you're being timed and you have a lot of weight on your back, that makes a huge difference. So I just barely passed my six-mile rug run. I passed it with like five minutes to spare. And I had been blowing away the 12. So to just barely pass the six, I was like, oh, no. I'm going to get dropped for lack of competence. And MARSOC is also unique because you can actually pass every event in assessment and selection and just not be selected. You actually have to be selected to move on to phase two. So you can pass everything with flying colors. If they just don't like your personality, if they don't think you jibe well in the in the MARSOC community, if they don't think you're a good teammate, you just won't get selected. So that adds an element of your character is actually taken into consideration because you can also fail every event and still get selected because if they think you're coachable and teachable and they think that you would still be a good teammate, you can still be selected and move forward, even if, if you failed the physical events. So that's what kept my hope alive. As we're going through the training, the 8-mile ruck run, the 10-mile, the 12-mile ruck run, I pass every event. We have a two, I think it was a mile and a half sprint. So usually the combat fitness test is an 880, which is about half a mile sprint in full games. We had one that was a little bit longer. I think it was a mile, full, full on sprint. I don't have a right knee. So I'm completely hobbling through this. I, I literally passed it with three seconds to spare. And I had the instructors running with me like, let's fucking go, Reeves. Let's fucking go, Reeves. They wanted me to pass. They were hoping my knee would heal. Comes time to go to phase two. So we're doing a land navigation event. During this land navigation event, you have a series of points that you have to find using a map and compass. Very, very primitive. Just in case your equipment dies in country, you can still find your way around. It's a very important skill. I didn't have a right knee. It was completely locked out straight. So I went to go kind of swing it over a log to continue on my azimuth to find my next point. And my knee bent for the first time in a month. And I just felt tearing all throughout the ligament. And I didn't know exactly what it was because nobody knew what the problem was. I just knew that I couldn't put any weight on this knee at all after that. I had to low crawl because I couldn't walk on it at all. I had to low crawl to a path. This is about three days before the selections were announced. This is like our last big event. We had this one and then, and then the 12 mile. That was it. So I think it was two days before the phase two selections were announced. And I had to low crawl to this open field, the road where the safety vehicles would drive. And I had to just kind of wait on the road for a safety vehicle to come. As luck would have it, the vehicle that came down was the head instructor, Staff Sergeant Hernandez. And he pulls me into the back of the safety van. And he's like, oh, Reeves, don't tell me. 
Like he just knew my name already. There was 200 guys at selection. He knew my name. He pulls me into the van. He's like, don't tell me. I was like, that's wrong. I can't put any weight on any at all. And he lifts up my camis. The swelling was so bad. You could see my tendon and, and ligament through the skin. That's how bad the swelling was. And he was like, you can't put any weight on it at all. I'm like, not at all. That's right. I can't put any weight on it. And he was like, you know what this means, right? I, that's the first time that I've cried in my military enlistment. The first and only time. I couldn't, I bust out with emotion. And he almost did too. Because he could see how bad I wanted this. This is all I've wanted since I was, a kid. I was 12 years old. Like, this was my Super Bowl. I don't want to be a professional baseball player like I thought I wanted to. I want to be a Marsoc Raider. I want to be Marine Corps Special Operations. That's all I want to do. I have so much more respect for anybody in SOCOM than I do for anybody who plays for the MLB, NBA. Not that they haven't also earned it, but there's a degree of danger and bravery that's not relevant in professional sports minus combat sports. If you're playing basketball for a living, there's no danger in that. There's no selflessness in that. You're doing that for the paycheck because you, you like to play a certain game and you're very good at it and you are good for the economy and other things. But that element of danger is just not there. The worst you're going to get is a sprained ankle. A lot worse can happen in SOCOM. So he says, you know what this means, right? Completely bust out with emotion. And he goes, we're going to have to drop you for medical reasons. So you cannot go to phase two. He says, because if we allow you to still go to phase two, he goes, you are in line to be selected. Even if you passed the 12-miler tomorrow, even if you didn't pass the 12-miler tomorrow, we all saw that you would have normally done it under normal circumstances. We can tell you're in fantastic shape and your mind is unbreakable. Spiritus Invictus is the slogan of Marsoc, unbreakable spirit. You have Spiritus Invictus. You have an unbreakable mind. Even if you didn't pass the 12-miler tomorrow, you're going to be selected. But I can't let you see phase two. Because the chances that you pass phase two without a knee are zero. And once you see phase two, you can never come back. Because now you have an unfair advantage over the next candidates. Because you've seen phase two, so we don't allow you to come back. He goes, so we're going to drop you for medical reasons. He goes, re-enlist, train up, come back next year. Come back next January. So that was in January 2017. I would have had to come back January 2018. My end of active service was in July of 17. When I got dropped from medical, I went to the Navy doctors, the actual doctors in the hospital in Camp Pendleton, because assessment and selection takes place in Stone Bay, North Carolina. They flew me back to California. I went to see the naval doctors there, and they still didn't know what was going on. So they just said, rice it, rest, ice, compress, elevate, and they put me on crutches. That was in February of 2017. Come July of 2017, I was still on crutches. I was on crutches for almost six months. Nobody knew what was going on with my knee, but I still couldn't bend my knee. So my options were, well, in order to re-enlist, you have to pass a physical fitness test. And while I could have probably gotten a waiver for that, still being under medical, I made the fateful decision to get out of the Marine Corps because it sounded like a glorious life outside the Marine Corps. Because when you live in the military so long, the idea of going to college and parties and girls and freedom sounds very enticing. And since I couldn't really 
I thought my dreams of special ops were over. I thought that was it. That was the end of the road. So I signed my end of active service paperwork and I got out in July of 2017. When I saw this doctor in the private sector, he told me, the, the reason your knee is messed up is because you have brain damage. I was like, what do you mean brain damage? And he goes, you have brain damage. The whole right side of your brain is, is damaged. I was like, how can you tell that? He just looked at my eyes really quick. And he could tell that I had brain damage. And he goes, did you ever get concussed in the Marine Corps? Yeah, I did. When I was on the martial arts instructor course. And I got thrown over that guy and I landed right on the back of my head. He goes, yeah, that caused brain damage on your... So now your whole body is shifted ever so slightly to the right. And it put extra pressure on the iliotibial band, the IT band, that starts in your hip and crosses over the entire knee and connects onto the lower part of the knee tibia. So that is not a tendon or a ligament. It's this weird tendinous material that's very hard to fix because it's incredibly dense. It's very, very, very tight. So I still have that problem today. He fixed my brain damage, but now I can't fix my, my IT band. So I still can't run. If I try to run more than 100 yards, completely locks up. And like, it's not going to snap the IT band is incredibly tough. It'll never snap. It just hurts a lot. Inhibits movement, more importantly, because I can't bend the knee. So everything else in my body has to overcompensate. I got out of the Marine Corps July of 2017. I was in college September of 2017. Immediately after. I almost got expelled the first day of college. I was fresh out of MARSOC training. I was right out of the Marine Corps. I went to Salem State University in Massachusetts, which is one of the most liberal colleges in the country. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just relevant to the story. I was very used to real rugged people. You say what you want. You make jokes that are inappropriate all the time. That's part of the culture. That's how you form bonds with each other. Dark humor is very common. You know, jokes involving X, Y, and Z are very common. I didn't know that. I thought college is where you went to toughen your mind, to harden your mind, to learn about complex, important, culturally significant issues. I thought college is where you went to discuss the future of Earth. Turns out that's not the case. I came here because I thought this was real education. I thought that you were trying to like, like college is supposed to be hard. Learning things is difficult. If you ever read there's a book by Lung Um. It's called First They Killed My Father. Read that book. It's about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, how they emptied the city out, made them go on these long death marches, and they put them in abandoned schools that act like torture houses, and they killed a third of the population. They murdered women and children by holding children onto their feet and swinging them into trees until it decapitated them. That's what the communist Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia. I came here to learn about this stuff. I came here to learn about the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. I came here to learn about the, the secret police in Soviet Union. I came here to read about the communists in 39 different countries across the world. I came here to learn about actual economic relations and what that means in terms of global enterprise. We're playing watermelon. I was like, no, this is stupid. This is a waste of time. This is a waste of time. I'm not doing it. And I refused to do it. They had to bring me to the dean 
because they were like, hey, listen, I know you don't mean anything by the language you're using, but you can't use words like that. And I was like, why? I thought we were here to become stronger mentally. I thought we were here to, to experience cognitive dissonance. I thought we were here to be uncomfortable because learning things is uncomfortable. You think it's easy to... It's not easy to read about how when you starve to death, you don't just drop over and die, but your connected tissue becomes so weak that your internal organs literally fall out of your body before you die. And that that's happening to millions of people across the world. That's not easy to read about. That millions of people a year across the world starve to death like that. That's not easy to learn. So why are we protecting everybody's feelings? You can't say certain words. What if those words happen to be pertinent? Granted, those words might not be necessary, but I don't understand the point of censoring them. I don't understand the point of censorship in, at all, because if you can censor me, you can also, you could also censor David Goggins. Where would the world be without men like David Goggins? Men who are in that sphere, by trying to silence men like that, that is active genocide. Because tens of thousands of young men are going to commit suicide as a direct consequence of not being able to hear a message like David Goggins says. Silencing men like that is active genocide. Maybe you don't care about male suicide. Maybe you don't care about veteran suicide. But know that if you start to censor people like that, you're going to have blood on your hands from tens of thousands of young men. I had a very rough transition. And I've thought about this for the past seven years. Why my transition particularly was so brutal. From July of 2017... Until, honestly, about a couple of weeks ago, I was really battling suicidality. Like, in a really, really major way. Like, I'm honestly kind of surprised that I've made it this far. And people have a misconception about veteran suicide. I think people assume veterans commit suicide because of all the trauma they experience in the, in the military. And that's probably the case for some of it. But the real reason is because of the lack of trauma in the civilian sector. There's just nothing here. Nothing means anything. Nothing matters. When you get to a point where, when I got out of the Marine Corps, one of the jobs that I had was working for Enterprise. I was renting cars up. If I didn't show up to work, or if I did my job poorly, people wouldn't get their car. But they still would because somebody else would just come and give them the keys. Or they would go to Avis and get their car there. Or they would Uber, or they would take a cab, and they would still get their car. So me showing up didn't really matter. If you don't show up in the Marine Corps, people die. If you don't do your job properly, people die. Like, really. Actually. People will die if you're bad at your job. There's always something you can be better at. You can always be smarter. You can always be a better leader. You can always be more confident. You can always shoot better. You can always be a better teacher and instructor, a better public speaker. There's always something to do. You can always be stronger. You can always be faster. You can always be more well-rounded. You can always be better at tying knots. You can always do something to improve the chances that all of your Marines come home. That's very hard to replace in the civilian side. And so when you go from a place where everything matters to where nothing matters really, like if you don't show up to work, nothing really changes. Like very rarely is your poor job performance going to result in somebody's death. Like, if you don't do your job properly in the Marine Corps, there's going to be crying wives over a casket draped in an American flag. If you don't do your job properly at Enterprise, nothing really changes. You might get fired. 
and have to find a new job somewhere else, doing something else that doesn't matter. So this pusillanimous society that we live in is not built for veterans. Back in the day, you could still be a man. You could still be pretty rugged. There's no place in society for us anymore. We are not welcome here. And that is very, very obvious. Because when you can't, even going to the gym now is an act of rebellion. If you're in a boxing gym, that's rebellious. You're seen as a barbarian. And people look at you like you're a savage in a wrong way, like not in the good way of savage. So I just don't think society is built for veterans anymore. And I think that's where the unwelcomeness comes in because we're not welcome here. In September of 2018, I went to UMass Boston, which is in Dorchester, which is like a small little town in the city of Boston. So I lived in Grove Hall, which is a little sub-neighborhood in Dorchester. And during that time period, college was just so easy. And I was getting $3,500 in the mail every month. So there was really no challenge in it because college for me was humiliatingly easy. And every job that I did didn't have the same significance of the military. I was having a very hard time with my transition. And turns out this is actually a fairly common path that a lot of veterans go down. I got very involved in the drug game because I just needed something interesting to happen. I just needed something interesting. And therapy never worked for me because I couldn't find a therapist that was like me. Typical therapy is very empathetic and sympathetic. That's not therapeutic to me. What's therapeutic to me is you're not doing enough. You could do a lot more. You could be better at this. That David Goggins style, get off your ass and let's get it to work. That's therapeutic to me. Traditional therapy didn't work. So I had to kind of find my own way. The way that I did that, I didn't know how to replicate the kind of adrenaline that you get in the military, the kind of significance that you get in the military. The only thing that I could think of that was genuinely dangerous and exciting and produced that adrenaline as I got involved in the drug game. And my mother and stepfather had already been pretty involved in it. So I had a pretty good blueprint. I kind of knew what to do. I kind of knew how to get it. I was living in Dorchester in Grove Hall and I would drive up to Vermont, which is like a three, four hour drive away. And I had a guy up there that I would pick some stuff up from. And my first ever load that I carried was a hundred grams of cocaine. And he put it inside like a car muffler or whatever to like try to like conceal it. And I would drive that down across state lines, which is also a big deal. And I would get it back home, weigh it out, cut it up. And I, I would go in, on Mass Ave was a big, long street full of all addicts and dealers. That's kind of where they all hung out was on Mass Ave. That was maybe a half mile from my door. So I would just throw on my hoodie and I would go over there and I would deal. And that was exciting. I didn't care about the money. Like I just wasted the money. But I would go and sell drugs, and then I would go and... And I got into crack pretty hard because I realized, well, if I cook it, I can get a lot more money for a lot smaller amount. So it was a, it was a better business deal. So I was really flirting with that pretty hard, especially because I was out there by myself. Usually when you do that, you're a part of either a gang or at least a group of you for protection. So I just had my 45 on my waist under everything. So it was still concealed, but, and I would just go out and hustle on my own. 
Like I didn't even really necessarily work on a corner. I would just like kind of stand in Mass Ave and like kind of casually approach people that I could tell were on drugs. And I would ask what they usually pay for and I would do it for $5 less. So I ended up getting all the business. But now that got a little bit dangerous for obvious reasons. So the another thing that I would do is I would call, it's called hawking brass. So I would go to like a mall kiosk. You buy those little fake chains. They're like, like gold plated for like 10, 15 bucks a chain. And then you, you get a whole bunch of those and then you just pawn them off as real gold. I would go on offer up. You have to make a new email every time you do this so that they can't report you to, because it's illegal to do. You go on offer up. Offer up is an app where you meet in person and you exchange cash for items. So I would say I'm selling my gold chain. I would get a bunch of hits on it and, um, I would go and meet those people. So I had like 10 or 20 identical chains. So I could just make one post and sell it to everybody on there. So that I only had to erase the account and make a new email a couple of times. So I could sell five, six, seven chains a day and then just have to, you know, delete the app, make a new account with a new email. So I got into doing that. So you can buy a $10 fake chain, gold plated chain and sell it off for $350. That's obviously very dangerous because if you're buying cocaine, you know what you're buying. If you're buying crack, you know what you're buying. If you're buying a gold chain and it turns out to be gold plated, that's dangerous because now you've wasted $350. Normally, if they're buying 50 bucks worth of drugs, they know what they're getting. So I would go and sell these chains off. And the way that you kind of get around the, it's called a fire test. So if you burn gold plated, it'll show up black. If you burn real gold, it won't. So what you do is you burn the gold with the lighter and then you like kind of swipe it away to show it to them. So it looks like it's real. I was in Mattapan one time, which is also called Murderpan. And I was selling this gold chain to this lady to buy for her, her husband. So I'm selling the one around my neck, but I'm showing her this one. The reason I do that is because their guard is up that this one might be a fake chain. But the one that's not for sale, they're not going to think it's a fake one because it's mine. So I'm showing her this one. And then she goes, well, what about the one around your neck? I want that one instead because they always say that. I was like, well, I'm not really selling this one because this is a family heirloom. It came from my grandfather and, you know, all this kind of thing. And she would go, well, I want that one. I don't want the one that you're showing me because I think this one, this one might be fake. So I was like, you know what? Just because I really, really need the money, fine. I'll sell you this one instead. You put the the one that you were presenting away. You take this one off. You do, the, you do the fire test on this one so that they think it's real. You sell it to her. You take the cash and then you leave. And then you, you know, erase the account, leave the email before they find out that it's fake. Well, right after I made that deal, I went to leave this lady's house. As I was leaving her house, her husband is walking in. And her husband is very clearly gang affiliated, tattoos everywhere, big, big muscular guy. And he just sees some dude leaving his wife's house, leaving his house that his wife is in. So he like kind of walks by me like, what was that all about? And then she goes, oh, I was hoping to show you when you got home, but here, I bought you a gold chain. And then he was like, he could tell, and he was like, that doesn't sound right. So he went to check it on his own. So he had a lighter on him really quick and he just kind of burned it. I saw him burning it while I was getting in my car. So he sees the black and he turns really quick while I put in my car and drive. And I floor this car as hard as I can to get out of here because he's obviously got a gun. He's obviously strapped. 
So I just see him turning to me like this while I'm peeling away. And I kind of duck just in case he shoots because I can like see him reaching for something. I don't know what he's reaching for, but use your imagination. So I just got out of there as quick as I could. I took off and I'm like on my phone erasing the offer up account so that he can't track me in any kind of way. So that's why I stopped hawking brass. The reason I stopped selling crack cocaine is because I got pulled over one night and my handgun was legal. My 45 was legal in Massachusetts, you know, compliant to Massachusetts. I had a, a license to carry for it and everything. I got pulled over one night. So I have a firearm on me, which is legal, but I also have two and a half ounces of crack cocaine in the glove compartment. Luckily, I wasn't drinking or anything crazy like that. It's like a, a taillight being out or something like that. And my heart is going ballistic inside my chest. I can't believe he can't like see my pulse and my carotid, like completely freaking out. I'm like short of breath. I'm like panicked. I think he just thought I was just some nervous kid about getting pulled over because he was like, do you have anything in the car that I should worry about? And I'm like, no, not at all, officer. No, no chance at all. And I'm just trying to play it off cool. And he was like, he seemed kind of suspicious. Like he was like about to, because I, I couldn't hide it at all. Like that's like five to 10 years. Like that's a long time. Two and a half ounces of crack is a big block. Yeah. Like that's a brick of crack. So he was like, I'm probably looking at five to 10 years if he wanted to search my vehicle. And there's no way around that. Like if you had a little bit of weed or coke on it, you could probably get by being a veteran, but two and a half ounces is clearly an intent to distribute. And having a firearm on top of that, even if it's a legal firearm, in connection with that doesn't look good in court. So luckily he let me go. I got home that day in Dorchester in Grove Hall. I walked in the door, I knocked on my neighbor's door and I was like, bro, how much cash do you have on you right now? He was like, I think I got like 500 bucks. I'm like, take all of this, you sell it. I'm getting out of this game. I'm getting out of this. I do not want to spend my life in prison. I, I would have still been in prison right now. If he had just searched my car that day, I'd still be in prison. And now luckily I can talk about that because the statute of limitations is up. That happened seven years ago. So, but I took his 500 bucks. He took the brick of crack and I got out of the game clean that day. I never sold anything again. The reason I got so involved in that is because I just could not replace the adrenaline of the Marine Corps. And, you know, you're going like picking fights on the street just to feel something, just to feel something. Because I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel like anything was worth doing. I didn't feel like anything was as significant. I didn't feel like anything had the, nothing was hard. Nothing was difficult. Like I get stressed out from lack of difficulty, not from difficulty. The harder something is, good. The more immersed I can get into it, the more I like being stressed. I think I like the feeling of cortisol in your blood. I don't know what it is, but if I'm not stressed, if I'm not afraid to do something, I just have no interest. It's just boring as hell. I always appreciate it when somebody thanks me for my service, but there's something in the back of my head that says you don't deserve to be thanked for it because I didn't do anything. So. I went through the hardest entry-level military training in the world. Marine Corps boot camp is the hardest entry-level military training in the world. I went through the martial arts instructor course, which I'm a tough guy. That almost broke me. Incredibly difficult course. I went through special operations assessment and selection unsuccessfully, but I still went through that training. I went through Marine combat training. I went to infantry leadership courses. I went to medical trauma management courses. And I never got to utilize that in real life. So I kind of feel like 
I feel like I'm a Division I football player who I've played football my entire life at a very, very high level, and I've never played in a game. I've never left the bench. So are you a football player, or are you just somebody who practiced football a lot? Are you a Marine, or are you somebody who just did some Marine things sometimes? Are you a warfighter, or are you just playing pretend in your backyard, really? So when you never get to utilize these skills, you just have really bad imposter syndrome. So when people ask me if I was in the military, I'm almost hesitant to say yes. There's a lot of guys out there that have done a lot of stuff in the military, and they have a lot of stories and experiences. I have none of those that really matter. Hard training, sure. Difficult training, sure. But what was it in the service of, ultimately? If I've never gotten to utilize the benefit from those courses, it's kind of like writing a paper but never turning it in. That's a hard thing for a lot of veterans to swallow because you join the Marine Corps for that reason. If you wanted to, to join the military with no chances of going to war, you would have gone and be admin in the Air Force. You would have gone to be a boat mason in the Navy. You would have gone to be an admin clerk in the Army. You join the Marine Corps to go to war. You join the Marine Corps because you want to see combat. You want to see action. Because there's, for a certain percentage of us, a very small percentage of us, on the far right side of the bell curve, there's nothing else. That's the only option. So I think, in my experience, I've had, I think, 10 friends now commit suicide since they've gone out of the Marine Corps. In fact, one of them yesterday. And a part of it isn't that veterans commit suicide. A part of it is that men who would join the military commit suicide. Because sometimes there's just nothing else. When you get out of the Marine Corps, out of the military, what else is there for you? Like if you were in a, if you were in a combat MOS and now you get out, nothing can replicate that. There's just nothing for you. College is not going to do it. It's not hard enough. Now, luckily, I've found professional fighting. I'm slated to become a pro within the year. And that has luckily, that's luckily dangerous enough and significant enough that it can sort of replace the military. But they're still lacking that cultural significance. Because at least while I was in, to remain as apolitical as possible, I still believed what I was doing was a good thing. Because I was told my entire life that this is a good thing to do. And maybe it is, maybe it's not. That's kind of irrelevant. I believed it was the right thing to do. So I'm putting myself through all this training for a higher cause. That higher cause, I'm sort of having to artificially create in fighting. It makes me a better protector. So that, like I said, nobody will ever put their hands on me or anybody I care about again without significant consequence. And that is the closest thing that I can find to replicating the military. Because I'm going through five, six hours of boxing training every day. Yes for the recognition. Yes for the success. Yes to occupy me. But also to make sure that I leave a long legacy and a long bloodline of, you don't mess with Reeves. You, you can mess with somebody else's last name. You don't mess with anybody whose last name is Reeves just in case they happen to be my ancestor, just in case they happen to be one of my descendants. 
you're not going to mess with anybody with the, with the last name Reeves because my kids are also going to be very, very highly trained. My kids are going to be very, very lethal. You are not going to touch my wife. You're not going to get anywhere near my wife. If you, if you make my wife uncomfortable, it might be the worst decision you've ever made. I've found my life's value, my life's meaning and purpose in being a protector. The only thing that I've ever known is how to protect. My uncle hit my mother when I was a kid. He grabbed her and threw her across the yard. I was like seven or eight. And I saw that and I couldn't do anything. He was a 35-year-old man. Seven or eight years old, I can't do anything. But I never forgot that. And I remember feeling helpless. Like, I want to be able to do something here. But I can't. He's a 210-pound hell's angel. What am I going to do? Mate. What I can do is make sure that nobody ever does it again. Make sure that my wife will never have to worry about that. Anybody that I'm with is safer because of my presence. And that is the best meaning that I can find. Maybe my life doesn't have meaning, but maybe theirs will. And maybe I can preserve theirs. So being the protector is the only thing that I've found that has any significance. And anything that I can do to become a better fighter and a better protector and provider is worth it. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I purposely left my disability claim at zero. So I didn't want to claim any disability because I still wanted my chance to re-enlist into MARSOC if that opportunity ever presented itself again. So I intentionally left everything at zero, but I still made the claim. I just never pursued it. Just in case later on I wanted to pursue it, I could. So even though I still have permanent knee damage in both of my knees, permanent tendon damage in both of my elbows, permanent brain damage, I still kept my claim at zero just so I could re-enlist if I ever wanted to. And a part of that claim they tell you to make the claim and to just include everything. So you include depression, anxiety, things like that. Just from making the claim, I tried to re-enlist last year and go in as an officer. So an officer would have been like a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, major. These are the officer ranks. And they're in charge of the enlisted personnel. I wanted to go and be one of those because I figured this life outside the military is not for me. I'm going down the wrong paths. I just want to get back to what I know. So I tried to re-enlist. When you go back through as an officer, you have to go back through the military entrance processing station. You go back through MEPS, and they look at your record. Everything that you've done in the military, any current injuries, any claims that you have. And they saw that in 2019, I had made a mental health claim to speak with a therapist at the VA because I was having a very hard transition. I couldn't find my way to adapt into civilian life. I was very stuck in the military. And I wanted to get some help with the transition, some like mental help with the transition. And because I made that claim, I jumped on a 20-minute Zoom call once with a counselor, realized this isn't doing anything for me, and I never made another attempt at help again. Because I made that reach out four years ago, I was barred from ever joining the officer ranks in the Marine Corps. MEPS flagged me. They said I'm not allowed to enlist. Because I made one claim for 20 minutes on a Zoom call four years ago, because I had a bad day four years ago, you can't re-enlist. And then they want to turn around and talk about veterans' mental health. They want to tell you to reach out. But if you reach out, we're going to ruin your life. But we still want you to reach out. The consequences are endless if you reach out for help. You have to suffer in silence. 
And that's fine. Maybe that's the lot for veterans. Maybe you have to suffer in silence. Because if you reach out for help, you're stuck. You can never do anything again. Not in the military. So maybe we as veterans have to accept that. And just think that nobody else cares. That's fine. But we have to care about ourselves. So the veteran community is the 1%. Maybe we have to stick together and band together. Because... All of these institutions are so against reaching out for help. I don't know what their fear is. I don't know if they think they're reaching out for help. And then you get the help and you feel better, but you still can't go back in. Because sometimes you're having a rough day. Sometimes you just need a solution. And sometimes the solution is there. And once the problem is solved, you still can't go back in. You still can't do anything in the military. If you make a claim while you're in, I've heard of people getting forced out. Because they've been having some rough thoughts. Because one of their friends killed themselves while they were in. And they're having a hard time dealing with it. Then they can't reenlist either. Because they have mental health problems now. So I don't know what they want. I don't know if they want us to reach out or suffer in silence. Either way, you're suffering in silence. If you reach out first, then that's on you. I don't know what they want. These organizations and bureaucracies are very good at signaling virtue. We want you to reach out. We want to make sure you're mentally okay. We want to make sure you're healthy. We want to make sure that you're you know, you know, thinking about self-harm. The minute you say, you know what? I actually am having a rough time. I think I do need some help. Good. Your, your career is over. Get the fuck out. You don't want me to reach out to get help. You want me to reach out to improve your fucking numbers. Because you can kick me out before I do anything that's going to affect your fucking bottom line. I think that's what the actual motivation is. Because why else would you bar me from going in? You don't want me to go back in just in case I do something in there and it hurts your fucking numbers. Because you want to be seen as a welcoming and accepting place where no harm ever happens. You're the military. Bad things are going to happen. You know what might help? If you help. If you allow us to just, just let me sit across from a chaplain and talk to him. Chaplains are an amazing asset in the military. How come we can't use them? If I walk into a chaplain's office and anybody in my command gets wind of it, your career is over. Your career is done if you ever walk into a chaplain's office. They're not a mandatory reporter. But if anybody in your command knows, they are a mandatory reporter. So you better keep that shit silent because somebody's going to find out. And your career is over. You can't reenlist. You can't get out and get back in. But I don't think the way to improve that is by changing the system. That's way too complicated. The bureaucracy is way too long, way too thick. The way to get around it is to talk to each other. The reason I care about mental health so much, my own personal mental health, is for you. To take care of my veterans. I see mental resilience like putting on your oxygen mask on the plane. You don't put your oxygen mask on so that you can breathe. You put your oxygen mask on so that you can help other people breathe. It's just a prerequisite to be able to help. And I think that perspective will give veterans something to go off of. Maybe you're suffering, but maybe you can help other people suffering. I think that inward focus, only worrying about yourself, just breeds more suffering. So I think if we can find a way to... You do it for yourself to do it for other people. Because I can't help you if I'm suffering too. But maybe if I try to help you, maybe that'll help me get over my stuff too. Maybe we can help each other. Because... Society doesn't care about veteran suicide. The number has been 22 a day since like 2000. That number is definitely higher now. And 22 a day is atrocious. And I guarantee the number is higher now. Nobody cares. And that's fine. As veterans, we're on our own. Nobody cares. We've already done our service. Nobody cares. 
And that's fine. You, you don't have to care. I want you to worry about you, but I want to worry about my veterans. I want to worry about my fellow vets. That's what I want to do. I think certain things happen to us for a reason. I think that if you're really suffering, the best mental model is that that's supposed to happen to you. Well, that's all a part of the plan. Whether you're religious or not, you believe in energy, the universes or not, the best mental model is that that's supposed to happen to you. That's all a part of the plan. Something is going to come from it. And sometimes your highest highs are a consequence of your lowest lows. So I had been severely depressed since I got out of the Marine Corps, July of 2017. Once I realized that I was no longer in the military, my depression kicked in very, very, very hard. I never had depression beforehand, but it kicked in very, very hard. And I had pretty much gone lower and lower and lower and lower up until about two weeks ago. I was at my absolute lowest point. And if I had had a different perspective on suicide, I might have done it. I just don't believe that our lives is ours to take. I think our, our lives belong to everybody around us because you can't destroy energy. You can only transfer energy. So if I'm feeling depressed, the best move is not to end my suffering because then it just transfers everybody else around me. And my suffering would have eventually ended. I, I was depressed for seven years. If after the first year I committed suicide, well, my mother still would not be over that. My stepfather would never be over that. All my friends who are veterans would have never been over that. My girlfriend at the time would have never gotten over that. I felt like it was my job to suffer. This is just my time to suffer. I just have to grit my teeth and bear through it as best as I can because at least I am suffering and not everybody else. At least everybody else, they might not know it, but I'm sparing them suffering by me taking it on myself. Because the minute they get the news that I'm no longer here, the sorrow of me not being there, the guilt that they might have had something to do with it, the uncertainty of if they could have prevented it will never leave any of them. So as long as people still care about me, I don't believe I could do it. I just don't think that it's my life to take. I believe that my life belongs to everybody else. Your highest highs will come from your lowest lows. About a month ago was my absolute lowest point. I was at my absolute lowest point about three weeks ago. And I didn't know if I would even make it to the next morning. And something clicked in my mind. I said, what about fighting? I don't know why I never clicked before, because I had gone down the path before, but I never got immersed in it. I think it's because I might have had the wrong mentality. I wasn't ready at the time. I wasn't ready to be a fighter at the time. For whatever reason, who knows what the reason is. I wasn't ready. But something clicked in my mind. I said, what about fighting? Maybe I can try that again. So I called a couple of gyms and I got hooked up with, with a trainer now. And his name is Yuka. And he's a very, very good boxing trainer. Very, very, very good coach. As of right now, I believe he's taken 27 people to championship belts. 27 men have walked in that gym and nobody. And within a couple of years, they had a championship belt around their waist. That's something to strive for. That's somebody who might be able to lead me to something great. Because that's what I've just been missing is just greatness. I think everybody believes when they're a kid that they're destined for something great. And they let it die off around adulthood. Once they hit college, once they hit military age, once they get in their first nine to five job, their dreams tend to die away. 
Mine never did. I just always thought my name is supposed to be in lights somewhere. People are supposed to listen to what I have to say. People are supposed to want to watch me fight. People are supposed to want to watch me. I'm supposed to be important. I'm supposed to be significant. Why aren't I significant yet? The reason is because I wasn't ready yet. During that seven years of crippling depression, like battling suicide literally every day for seven years, during that time, I had grown so exponentially from just the battle, just the battle itself. Then I've also read probably a hundred books on psychology and psychiatry. Everybody from Carl Jung to Sigmund Freud to Thomas Saz, uh, Dr. Daniel Amon, Jordan Peterson, you name a psychologist, I've probably read them at some point, including philosophy like Marcus Aurelius and Cicero and these kind of guys. That cerebral exploration, as well as the emotional exploration of just going through that battle and still having the fortitude to still work out, to still get in the gym, to still read, to still try to be productive, even though you just don't even want to be on earth anymore, let alone be productive on it. That seems so overwhelming. But to keep going through that battle, to keep going through that struggle, you might not see it as heroic, but that's heroic because you're becoming what you could be during that period. That's just your time to suffer. But you can't have suffering without growth. Those are the same thing. So one thing that I learned how to do is change my language. I'm so depressed today. I'm just so depressed today. I'm so motivated to change my life today. Like, feel the power in that. I can feel my chest expand from that, just from saying it. Because that's literally what depression is, is a motive. My motive is to no longer feel depressed. By definition, that's motivation. But change the language. Why am I talking in negatives all the time? Why am I depressed instead of motivated? If I feel the power, I'm so depressed, I'm too depressed to work out. I'm too motivated to not work out because I have to get out of this. I have to change this. And I think people set limitations on themselves. They don't think they have the power to change it. If other people can change your mind by saying things, by extension, you can change their mind by saying things. And by the transitive property, you can change your own mind by saying things. So I just changed my language. Instead of saying depressed, I started saying motivated. And I, I made that change a couple of years ago. And it won't have an immediate effect. It won't work immediately. But those small wins build up. And when the right opportunity comes, once you're ready, once you are man enough or woman enough, or once you're adult enough, once you're mature enough, that opportunity will present itself. And then it changes. And now all of a sudden you have a purpose. You might not be happy, but that's not the goal. For me, the goal is fulfillment and pride. I want to be proud of who I am. I want my wife to be proud of me. I want my kids to be proud of me. I want my mother and my stepfather to be proud of me. I don't care if I'm happy, but happiness is a byproduct of them being proud of me. Because now they just see me on my mission now. It happened overnight. I talked to Yuka. The next morning, I couldn't help but cry emotional tears of happiness because I found it. I found it. It was like being on a treasure hunt for seven years and you come across it. It's not that it's the treasure, man. Who cares about the money? It's that I found it. It's that I did my job. I found the, I found my purpose. 
And now all the stuff to do is the work. How easy is that? After having gone through seven years of battling suicidality, now all of a sudden all I have to do is work? Are you kidding me? That's the easiest thing in the world. I'll box 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. You won't get me out of that gym because now I don't have the depression holding me back anymore. It's like trying to run with an anchor around your waist and take the anchor off. Oh, well, now I can just go. Now that I have my mission, my purpose, and that depression isn't holding me back anymore, I was still able to make forward progress with that depressive anchor around my waist. Now remove the anchor. I think people just have to find that thing, particularly veterans, man. It's hard to replace the military. It's very, very, very hard to replace that significance, to replace that danger, to replace the adrenaline. You have to find your thing. If you're struggling through it, you have to find your thing. Because once you find it, and once you're ready for it, I tried boxing back in 2019. I tried boxing then. It wasn't for me. I wasn't ready at the time. I wasn't ready to be a professional fighter, a professional athlete. My coach wasn't the right coach. I wasn't in the right city. My mind wasn't strong enough yet. I hadn't suffered enough. Now I've suffered enough. My time to suffer is over. My time to excel has just begun. And you can reach that point. You can reach that point yourself. You just have to stick through it. Because it might be tomorrow. You might find that thing tomorrow. Last week on a Thursday, I was considering suicide. On Friday, I found my thing. And I'll never be depressed again. Because having gone through all of that, now that I have my thing, my time to suffer is over. If you're contemplating suicide, think about who you're going to leave behind. It sounds rough because you have to stick through this pain longer. And you don't know how long it'll be. And it, it will seem overwhelming. But think about who you're leaving behind. You will get through it. You won't be depressed forever. You will get through it. You'll find something. You'll have kids and those will end up being your life. You'll find your sport like I did. You'll get into a new bar, meet a new woman. You'll find something. You'll get through it. Something will change. If you're going through it, we all go through it. You're not alone. Reach out to a veteran. Any veteran will talk to you. Any veteran will help you. There's no shame at all. I'm one of the most masculine men that I know. I'm a, I'm easily in the top 1% of fitness, easily in the top 1% of strength. Marine Corps martial arts instructor, went through special operations selection, soon to be a professional fighter. I'm open about my mental health. There's absolutely no shame in it. If anybody tries to shame you for it, you show them me because I'm very open about it. And because I'm so open about it, I think that's what helped me get through it because you realize that people do care, even if they don't have the capacity to help you. They might not be able to tell you what your thing is. They might not be able to tell you how to get through it, but they can at least tell you that you're not alone. And that can do great things for you. Talk to people. There's absolutely zero shame in admitting that you're having a hard time, particularly among veterans. Maybe non-veterans won't care or they can't help. Maybe your girlfriend even can't help. Maybe the woman you're talking to won't care. We care. Veterans care. I care. Reach out to me. I don't care if we've never spoken before. Reach out to me. I'll do the very best that I can for you because it affects me when veterans commit suicide. We might not be as open about it because veterans tend to play things off. Very rough people. I don't care what time it is. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if we've ever talked before. I'll talk you through it as best as I can. You are not alone. So my Instagram is the Rich Reeves. 
T-H-E-R-I-C-H-R-E-E-V-E-S. You can reach out to me at any time. I answer comments on my posts better than, than messages because I get so many message requests. If you leave a comment on any of my posts, an old one, I'll see it, I will reach out to you. Promise you. You leave a comment, just say veteran in distress or hey man, I'm a vet, I need, I need to talk to you, whatever it is, I will, I will message you. I'll jump on the phone, I'll jump on a video call, I'll text you, whatever you want. You can get in touch with me. If it's for mental health, if you just want to chat, I'm always available to talk. You can find me, The Rich Reeves, on Instagram.